This is a perfect time for a reset of Australian universities, and it's a critical time for Australian society to understand the role of universities in Australian national life. Universities don't just make an economic contribution, a contribution to the national economy. Universities make a profound contribution to our culture, society, and indeed to our democracy. Welcome to Whose University, Whose Culture, the third of three History of University Life podcasts about making universities fit for purpose. I'm Julia Horn, Professor of History at the University of Sydney and co-convener of the History of University Life Seminar on Higher Education. In these podcasts, I talk to three authors of essays, which will be in a new publication called Australian Universities, A Conversation About Public Good. You just heard from one of the authors, Tim Supomasan. Tim is Professor of Practice in Sociology and Political Theory, and he's also Director of University of Sydney's Culture Strategy. I caught up with Tim to talk about strengthening a university's institutional culture so it's fit for purpose. So welcome, Tim. It's a real delight to have you on the History of University Life podcast. It's great to be with you, Julia. So I'd actually like to travel back in time to the young Tim who first came to university, to the University of Sydney, I think it was, and ask you about your impressions of university when you were a student then, and also perhaps to reflect on how you think it's changed. There are so many things about a university experience that confront a young person as they enter a formative element of their life. And for me, the University of Sydney was my alma mater. I came here as a 17-year-old. This was a university I always aspired to attend and study at, and it was an exciting period. Uh, But you don't necessarily have a sense of a university culture uh, hitting you in any way. As a student, it's the university life or the university experience that hits you. It's the contact you have with other students. It's the clubs and societies that you join. It's the department in which you study or the faculty in which you study. And for me, my experiences were grounded in studies in political science or government international relations, as it was called and is still called at the University of Sydney in law And what granted my experience was the friendships that I formed through those classes, through the clubs that I joined. And uh, I still vividly remember spending lots of time in various student buildings around campus. What about your experience of university culture as a staff member? Experiencing university culture as an academic And as a working member of the university community is very different because you're engaged in the life of the university in a different way. You are working with um, colleagues throughout the working week. The contact that you have with students is of a different nature. Uh, So your, your view of culture obviously shifts as a result of that. What's your role and mission as Director of Culture Strategy at the University of Sydney? The work of my team and I are about strengthening our institutional culture at the University of Sydney and ensuring that we have a culture that's fit for purpose, a culture that enables our academic and professional colleagues to conduct and support research, teaching and broader service to society. 
Now, your work, of course, deals with this word culture, which can mean a whole lot of things depending what context it's used in, who's who's talking uh, and, you know, various things like that. So I think we should start with a definition. And what is the definition of culture that you use in your work currently in terms of running the culture strategy? Well, it's a big question, Julia, and culture does mean different things to different people. For anthropologists and for sociologists, you could be referring to culture as encompassing a whole way of life or a range of human activities embedded in different institutional settings. Uh, The way that we understand culture is perhaps more circumscribed or more defined than that because we're looking at organisational culture. And by that, I really mean the pattern of beliefs and values and norms that guide how members of an organisation go about their work. Uh, You can think of culture in the following way. It's how you behave when you think no one is looking. Uh, These go to things like the artifacts of a culture, so the visible structures or processes that are there in a place. You can think of this as encompassing as well the beliefs and the values. So what are the aspirations or the ideologies that are brought to bear for people in a workplace? And then there are the assumptions. So what are the unconscious beliefs that guide or shape how people interact with one another and treat others. Um, So culture refers to all of those things. It can be admittedly vague and intangible, but I would say that culture has an enormous role in shaping how you actually experience life working in a university. So in terms of changing the culture, uh, you know, one thing that I really like about the chapter in the forthcoming book on Australian universities is how you see history as related to the sort of culture that we have inherited. So I'd like you perhaps to just talk briefly what that means. So what sort of cultural legacy, cultural baggage we've inherited uh, in the history of higher education in Australia? Well, again, a big question, Julie, and I won't be able to do justice to it. Uh, can, but... can I just say, I like asking the big questions. <laughs> but brevity is the soul of wit. And, and, and I think in the case of the University of Sydney, the culture here can't be separated. I would say that the history of this place as an inheritor, if you will, of a certain tradition of liberal arts learning emanating from um, Britain with roots in Oxford and Cambridge, has shaped uh, culture at the University of Sydney. More broadly across the sector, I would say that Australian universities have been shaped by a pragmatic ambition, which is to say that they haven't been defined just as institutions of liberal arts learning, but have been as much vocational as they have been intellectual in their orientation. These are institutions that have been about training the professional classes uh, in different disciplines. And if you're talking about the culture of Australian institutions, all of these historical elements do have a a powerful influence in how work today is conducted and understood. How has the purpose of Australian universities shifted over the last five decades? particularly in regards to their public mission? Well, it has certainly shifted, hasn't it? I mean, you, you think of the what many would say was the seminal statement of what a modern Australian university was about, and that was that's something 
that was uh, uh, put forward in 1957 through the Murray Report. And there's a clear picture of a civic purpose that comes through that. The idea here that uh, 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 universities exist to seek the truth and that this is a service that is done for the good of society. Uh, Over time, this civic purpose has been accompanied to by an economic mission or purpose. Universities were meant to be contributors to a national economy and were seen as drivers of economic growth and productivity. And this has had an influence too on more recent discussions and discourses about how uh, universities are there to commercialize research in part. And it's something that comes through the language that we've had around the purpose of a university degree, which for many has been about creating job-ready graduates. So we've, we've seen here an evolution of the purposes of universities. If you're tying the purpose of universities to the economy, uh, then that does mean that you lose a sense of how universities contribute to culture or to a broader public good, to the sensibilities of citizenship and what it means to belong to a democracy. These are the intangible things bound up in, often bound up in culture, which don't always come through, particularly when you have a language which depicts universities as being in service to an economy. Now, you mentioned the Murray Report, which is one of my favourite reports. I'm very peculiar. I like reading reports about, you know, how to improve universities. And of course, that was commissioned by Menzies. You mentioned truth there. So you mentioned that Murray, who was the author of that report, saw truth as a particular mission of universities. Have we lost that? So we might be seeing here a bit more ambivalence or if you will, some pluralism in how we see the endpoint of the scholarly endeavour. Is it to seek the truth with a capital T? Perhaps it is for some, but I would say that for many others, that isn't the animating drive anymore, but rather the advancement of knowledge. And the advancement of knowledge may well encompass a number of truths with a small t and not a big T. And this is perhaps a reflection of the times and the different sensibilities that accompany the production of knowledge and epistemology. Now, let's have a look at this idea around engaging with the public. It's often called public engagement. And public engagement has become what public policy scholars Michael Mintram and Andrew Gunn call the third mission. They leave it intentionally vague, ambiguous almost, to accommodate the fact that public engagement can mean many things depending on how it's used. That's the third mission. The first two missions, of course, are teaching and research. So I'd like to ask you what you think about public engagement as one of the central missions, that third mission of the modern university. So the public engagement work that is now central to what all universities do, has become only more urgent because, frankly, universities have been caught up in more intense ideological political debates, often referred to as the culture wars, where the value of scholarly work may not 
be understood in the way that we have traditionally assumed. And going back to the times of Menzies and the Murray Report, or going back to the time of Gough Whitlam, you may have once assumed that political leaders and other elites had a shared consensual understand, consensus-driven understanding about the work that universities do. That has become more contested, and that means that public communication and engagement are critical now to our success. I might just take us back to that notion of changing institutional culture, and in particular, the what sort of role language itself has um, in setting the direction for change. So I'm thinking of some of the language that is in you know various universities' mission statements. So one university that shall remain unnamed uh, uses moral courage in its vision statement. Uh, the, the University of Sydney, of course, has the phrase courage and creativity, for example. So could you talk a bit about the power of these sorts of phrases, how they assist in changing institutional culture, and I guess also the way that staff approach what are the university's central missions of teaching, public engagement, research, production of knowledge? So the language that members of a community use to describe their own work gives you a window into how they interact and into their purpose. So if you're seeing, for example, the use of language around courage, around creativity, or around integrity, that gives you an indicator of the kinds of values that are driving uh, uh, people's behaviour here. Um, and, And I think having language like courage in institutional statements uh, is a reflection of the environment in which we, we now operate. Misinformation and disinformation are now threats to our, our democratic systems across the world. Those who produce knowledge and who conduct research and teaching will need to have reservoirs of courage because we're now living in a world where our purposes are contested, where there are people who will question whether we, we are doing the right thing or whether we uh, have been led astray from our traditional mission. And so I guess alongside courage, you know, the courage to speak out and the courage to do the sort of work that is, might push boundaries... There's perhaps also the need for a culture that allows for disagreeing well. So I wonder if you could talk about that concept, disagreeing well, and is it relevant to university, to an institutional culture? Oh, of course it is. I would see statements about the need to conduct disagreement in a civil manner as uh, affirming uh, that fundamental premise of academic work and academic freedom. Uh, And again, uh, this is work that universities traditionally know how to do well, but it is complicated by the political environment in which we now operate. Um, Universities are not a public square, although we do generate ideas and knowledge which then influence the public square. And there will be times when people from within the university will enter the public square, but the university as such is not a public square per se. Uh, This is not a place where uh, every opinion has the same value because some opinions 
don't have as much value as others because we're an academic institution and we have certain standards and we adhere to disciplines which guide our work. This is almost the final question, but I do want to ask one about the challenges of changing an institutional culture, particularly here I want to take up Glyn Davis's point about size matters. And that is, you know, that recognises that Australian universities are some of the biggest in the world. What are some of the challenges that you've found in terms of addressing institutional culture in these big institutions? It is true to say that the university is not constituted of just one culture. It's a collection of cultures. It's such a big place that what you see here is uh, a mix of cultures. And so when you're thinking about driving cultural change, sometimes you need to do this piece by piece or you need to find pockets that are open to change. And, uh, and once you are able to secure change within one part of the institution, you can then model that for other parts of the institution. That isn't always the case, and that shouldn't always be the approach. There may be occasions when you have to fundamentally drive change from the top down across the institution um, and do it at large. Um, but we, we find in our work that across many of the domains that we work in, that tackling culture change within a portfolio, within a unit, within a faculty or within a school can often be the most fruitful way to, to go about prosecuting change. And finally, give us one aspect that needs to be changed right now. <laughs> I've got a wish list. I mean, one, one barrier that does emerge so frequently in the conversations we have here, and I know which exists across so many other universities, is the division that exists between academic and professional staff. One working hypothesis I would have is that where universities are confronted with divides between academic and professional staff, it can be a symptom that the, the institution in question does not have a clear enough articulation of its purpose and that purpose isn't lived powerfully enough because then that's when people fall back into their roles or their sub-university identities. So that's my challenge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, Tim, it's been really interesting, as always, to speak to you about these sorts of matters. And congratulations, Tim, also on your new appointment as University of Oxford's first Chief Diversity Officer. And I've really enjoyed the sort of excursion through the big questions that, you know, are facing you and facing all of us, actually, in universities at all. So thank you very much. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. These podcasts are interviews with authors of chapters in a new publication, Australian Universities, a conversation about public good. It's edited by Julia Horne and Matthew Thomas and published by Sydney University Press in their policy series. History of University Life Higher Education Seminar has run for over 10 years. It's convened by Julia Horne, Matthew Thomas and Gabby Ramia and addresses issues in higher education, drawing on expertise from across the sector. You can find out about our events by heading over to History of University Life on Twitter handle at HULSeminar. That's all one word. The podcast is supported by the School of Humanities and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney 
with technical assistance from Peter Adams. The podcast was recorded on Gadigal Country and we pay our respects to Elders past and present.